You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. You've got your Bibles. You can turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Up to this point, we've been talking about spiritual gifts, um, knowing that we get our most extensive teaching and understanding about spiritual gifts from 1 Corinthians 14. Um, actually, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And so we've looked at some of these um, chapters in the past couple of weeks, and now we come to uh, the one that gives us the most extensive uh, information about practically how this looks in the local church. I gave you some background information on uh, the church at Corinth and why some of this teaching is given the way that it is. One, we said that there were problems and issues and questions coming out of this church. Problems, issues, and questions. We're not giving, we're not given uh, the information or the questions that were asked by this church. And that's a, a hindrance to us in maybe fully understanding the depth of what's going on here because we don't know the questions that the Corinthians asked Paul. He answers the questions. We don't have the questions. So it's a little bit like Jeopardy. We have the answers. We don't have the questions. Can we come up with the correct questions which will give us insight to the answers that he does give. Um, in addition to that, we see a lot of abuse, not just in the area of spiritual gifts, but just across the board in this church. Abuse based off of philosophies and um, habits that were coming from their previous pagan life and being infiltrated into the church, and it wasn't being dealt with the way that it should have been. So what we see, we have division, we have Issues with sex, we have lawsuits, marital conflict, uh, abuse of liberty, we've got feminism, a lack of modesty, a lack of submission from, from wives to husbands, just all kinds of issues going on in this church. And so Paul is working through issue by issue. There were issues with the Lord's Supper. Some of their pagan practices were affecting their new life in Christ, and so Paul's trying to correct this. And one of those areas is in, the, in regards to spiritual gifts, specifically in the area of tongues. We said from 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, I want you to be informed. So we said that Paul is sensitive to us this morning in that he does not want us to be confused about these issues. In the same way he doesn't want the Thessalonians to be confused about the end times, he doesn't want us to be confused about spiritual gifts. That doesn't mean he answers all of our questions, but we can trust that he is giving us concrete information that we can hold on to. So we looked at some of that concrete information from 1 Corinthians 12. We see that the gifts come from the Spirit, and they're unified in their purpose. So Paul says, it would not be of the Holy Spirit to have one person cursing Jesus and one person praising Jesus. The Holy Spirit is not in conflict with himself. So there's unity in the gifts that are given by the Spirit. Every Christian is gifted. Every gift is important. Nobody is insignificant. So we can, so we can start to generate a little bit of idea of what's going on in that church. Superiority was starting to take place in this church. Some people were viewed as more important and more gifted than others in the church. And some people were getting left out. Some people were being viewed as, hey, your absence is not that important. That's why when, when we come to you guys who maybe haven't been um, around in a while, part of the reason for that is that we're wanting to believe what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 12, that by being a member of this church, you are important. Your giftings are important to this church and what we're trying to do. We see that come out of 1 Corinthians 12. 
We need the giftings of others to be effective as a church, and gifts are given for the purpose of serving. We said that when Scripture gives us lists of spiritual gifts, it's not necessarily an all-inclusive list. I think ultimately what we take away from it is that the church is made up of all kinds of people doing all kinds of things. That The church works best when all people are serving and using their uniqueness to contribute to the advancement of the gospel and to the edification of others in the church. In fact, we defined the purpose of spiritual gifts being to equip the church to carry out ministry while growing into maturity until Jesus returns. The spiritual gifts are temporary until Jesus comes back. Until he comes back, we are given these gifts to equip us to carry out the ministry of the gospel while we individually grow up into maturity. We said here at Sovereign Hope, the ways we're wanting to apply this moving forward is we want to recreate an environment here where instead of leadership assigning tasks to you, that we have more of an open forum of here are the things that we need done and allowing you to respond to those needs based on your giftedness, which means we have to be more faithful than just saying, hey, we need somebody to do this, but also communicating, we need somebody to do this, and here's the type of person we think it will take to get it done so that you can see those things and say, hey, that's me. Hey, that's me. I can accomplish that for our church. I can do that. That's me. Not in a prideful, arrogant way, but just simply saying, hey, I think I'm gifted in that area. I think, I think God has equipped me to do the task that you're describing. We looked at 1 Corinthians 13 last week. We said that some of the things that definitely flow out of that passage, Paul states that even if one had the extreme of extremes in regards to gifts and lacked love, it would be all for naught. That love has to be present in the midst of our serving. That if we're not loving each other in our attempts to use our gifts, then then it falls apart. It, it doesn't accomplish what God wants it to. Paul places higher emphasis on attitude rather than action. So the attitude behind the gifts are more important than the actual gifts, according to Paul. The defining characteristics of love are the opposite of the abuses that were springing up in that church. Paul wants focus and importance placed on things that are permanent, rather than temporary. And we said that he describes some temporary aspect to the gifts. We said he said that tongues will cease, prophecy and knowledge will pass away. And we talked about the difference in those two terms in the original language. Tongues cease, prophecy and knowledge pass away. I told you that the, the words, I think, are chosen specifically to communicate something to us, that if we believe every single word in Scripture is inspired, then we have to believe that Paul didn't just uh, for no purpose or reason, choose two different words to describe these. We said that word cease means to stop, to come to an end. Like a battery with a limited lifespan, the energy would eventually run out. It stops by itself. Whereas prophecy and knowledge will only pass away, according to 1 Corinthians 13, when the perfect comes. Now, we're not given a lot of detail about what the perfect is, but... We looked a little bit last week in the context that it, it seems to be pointing to Jesus coming back. That, that prophecy and knowledge, hearing from God, communicating about God, and knowing God, those gifts won't be needed anymore because we will be with God face to face. So one passes away when the perfect comes, this idea of prophecy and knowledge. The other, we're told, will just cease. It'll just run out. It'll just run out. And that seems to be what we see from Scripture in regards to tongues. 
It's not a, a topic or an issue that is prevalent in the New Testament by any means. Um, we have to really dig deep here in just these couple of chapters to get some information on it. Um, a lot of the other writers in the New Testament don't even mention it. Um, and so I think we see by working through the New Testament a, a battery that runs out of power. And we're going to see more today from 1 Corinthians 14. Where does tongues fit? Where does it? Where did it fit there in that time? And where does it fit now if it does fit? Okay. Um, but last week we kind of got back into talking about healings because I wanted to suggest to you that what we seem to see from the New Testament is that apostles have stopped. And I believe that healing has stopped in the sense of what we see in the New Testament, the gift of healing. And that I'm comfortable now with saying that tongues have stopped, have ceased, based on admitting that some of these other things have ceased. We said specifically what we see in the New Testament. And I walked you through some passages in the book of Acts. People that had the gift of healing and what they were doing. They were healing people from things that there were no medical answers for. We said that uh, people that were paralyzed were being healed instantaneously. Not people going through rehab. I mean, and we talked about this last week. You see football players break their, break their neck, break their spine, and they're told they'll never walk again. But some of them are able to, through rehab and, and their body starting to heal on its own, some of them defy science and are able to regain motion that they were told they would never have again. We don't see that type of healing in the book of Acts. It's, hey, this person can't walk, and now he can walk. Instantaneous. We see people that were blind that are healed and, and can now see. We see people who are dead who are being raised to life. Now, I've, I've described to you in weeks past the conservative viewpoint on healing. The conservative viewpoint is people have the gift of healing in churches, and when they pray for somebody to get better, their prayers seem to get answered more than other people's prayers. That's how some of the conservative pastors that we respect and would say that we're in line with would, would potentially describe the gift of healing. I'm okay with saying that God answers prayer. I'm okay with saying that some people pray more fervently than others and their prayers are answered. I'm fine with saying that people that have sickness get better because people pray. I don't think it's consistent to label it as the gift of healing because it's not consistently being done in the same way. I told you, we don't have people who lose a loved one that bring a dead body into John Piper's church and say, hey, we need some people with the gift of healing to raise this guy from the dead. We don't see that. We don't see people coming in who could not walk, who were blind, and people in John Piper's church, Wayne Grudem's church, D.A. Carson's church, being able to heal this type of stuff. We said that what we predominantly see are people being healed of things that unbelievers get better from as well. You know, you could argue Matt Chandler, brain tumor, may not make it. People, elders pray in his church over him. Maybe people that claim to have the gift of healing pray over him. He gets better. But he gets better by going to, um, to, to chemotherapy. He gets radiation done, and he gets better. Is it a miracle? Absolutely. God heals him. God makes him better. Was he instantaneously healed? He wasn't in that case. He wasn't in that case. But we also see unbelievers that get healed of brain tumors, right? Like they, they go to the same chemotherapy, they go to the same radiation, and they're, they're better as well. 
So the type of healings that we see today that we want to label, hey, the gift of healing, this person got better, it's not the same as what we see in the New Testament. So I think it's fair to say that that gift has passed. It's ceased. The battery ran out. And we're not told specifically healing in 1 Corinthians 13 because he's addressing the issue of tongues. But that doesn't forbid healing also falling into that category. But I don't think we see that same type of thing happening um, in the churches that are describing that they believe that this gift still continues. Um, that's kind of where we had left off last week. Now we're looking at 1 Corinthians 14. What we're going to do today um, is kind of walk through verse by verse, and I'm going to make some comments about each verse, and I want to give you some of the things that God's been teaching me, recognizing that he probably still has a lot to teach me in this chapter. So I want to be very careful that I'm not authoritative in areas that I'm not 100% confident about right now. But what I believe that Paul communicates to us in this passage um, is the purpose of tongues I think he gives us the the place or the significance of tongues. And then I also think he I think he gives us some of the procedures for how tongues function in a local church. Okay? So we see kind of the position, the the significance, the importance of tongues, where does that fall in relation to other giftings? We see um the purpose of it, why was tongues given, and then we see kind of the function of it, the procedure of how to do it, okay? Before um, before we get into that, let's do two things, and we won't take real long to do this, but I think it's been healthy uh, over the past couple of weeks to do this so that we're learning through this together and not just you receiving it constantly. So in just a second, I'm going to give you some time to read through 1 Corinthians 14. I want you to write down the things that you think Paul is informing us of, okay? We're trying to draw out the big truths. What's Paul trying to communicate? So I'm going to give you some time to do that here in just a second. But before we do that, before we look at it, I want to get some ideas from you on what, if somebody asked you what was the purpose of tongues or what is the purpose for somebody who, who believes they continue, what is the purpose of tongues or what was the purpose of tongues? Any thoughts on that? If somebody asked you what was their purpose or what is their purpose, how would we answer that question? Validate the gospel, to edify the church, other thoughts on the purpose of tongues. Okay. Okay, so the gospel could potentially be preached without somebody having to learn multiple languages. To reveal mysteries of God. Anybody else? I 
I think it's important that we figure out the purpose because I think if we can figure out the purpose, it will it will give us the key to understanding if this continues or not. Now, I'm going to suggest to you based on the studying that I've done and where where I believe God's confirming things to me through his word. I don't think tongues were given to reveal any mysteries. And I'm going to show you why I think that today. I also don't think that tongues were given to communicate the gospel. And I'm going to show you why I think that today too. I think there was a specific purpose for tongues. And I would venture to say that that purpose is no longer present today. I'm going to leave open the door of possibility, and I'm going to show you at the very end. Here's how we will do tongues at Sovereign Hope. Okay? Whoa. Yeah. So stick around. Okay? Pay attention, because at the very end, I'm going to give you the procedure for how we will do tongues at Sovereign Hope moving forward. So I'm leaving open the door of possibility for this. But it has to go in line with the purpose the purpose of tongues. Okay, so I'm going to show you why I don't think the purpose is some of the things that we've heard a lot. That it's to give us new revelation or mysteries. That it's to communicate the gospel. I don't think that's the purpose. And I thought that it was the purpose for a long time. I don't think it's the purpose. I think Paul tells us the purpose. I think it's a very unique, specific purpose. And I think because of how unique it is, it does not exist anymore. I'm going to show you why. Now, this is an area we can disagree on, just like when we talked about eschatology. This is an area that we can disagree on, but I think it's important for us as at least church leadership to come to a point. Here's where we are kind of settled in at as far as this goes. And I'm going to be honest with you. Tyson came to me a while back and said, hey, I'm reading through Grudem's Systematic Theology, and this guy's really open to this stuff happening um, where do we stand on some of this stuff? And so I really, I met with a guy locally that, that believes in this stuff still happening. Um, I, I've listened to Piper teach that it's still happening. I, I've read Grudem say that it's still happening. So I went into this whole study wanting to be very open to this happening in our church, if that's what God wants. And I would say that coming out of it, I'm more convinced that it's not supposed to be happening. And that's now based more on scripture than the way that I was raised. And that's where we wanted to be. Okay, so I'm going to show you verse by verse why I'm reaching this conclusion. But before I do that, I want to give you five, ten minutes. We'll give you ten minutes. I'll give you till um, a little after 11 to kind of read through this on your own. You can talk with those that are right next to you if you want to. We won't do the whole break up into groups thing. Uh, but I want you to read through this on your own. We've got the same Holy Spirit living inside of us. I want you to write down what you believe to be some of the big truths coming out of 1 Corinthians 14. Don't get hung up on details that are confusing. Look, big picture, big truths. Does everybody understand 1 Corinthians 14? So we can leap. All right. Um, before we get into this, we're going to read through the passage that I'm going to share with you, what I think are some of the Key things coming out of 1 Corinthians 14. Um, let me ask you this. Do you think that uh, – you ever think that sarcasm can be used as an effective teaching tool? Yes or no? Yes. 
Sarcasm is not necessarily wrong. Now, you can take sarcasm too far to where it becomes an issue, but sometimes sarcasm is a tool, a language tool that is used for teaching purposes. Now, I'm going to suggest at times that Paul is using sarcasm in this passage. Now, there's no guarantee to that, but to some degree, we can read into the background, read into what he's stating to potentially resolve that there's some sarcasm playing out here. Let me give you an example. Uh, As a principal, I deal with a lot of issues coming from students that I have to kind of make a judgment call at on times, and I have to help resolve issues by getting one person to see really what's going on type of thing. So let's imagine there was an issue that sprung up in the lunchroom this week. Now let's imagine that I was absent, and I'm going to be absent here soon for a while because of Lauren and Abram. Um, So I've communicated to my teachers, there may be stuff that I have to communicate from home for you to handle. So let's say that I'm out and this happens, okay? The issue was there was um, an issue between 8th grade boys and 6th grade girls, okay? And I moved, so let's say a teacher moved the 8th grade boys because there was food that was being thrown, there was bullying that was supposedly happening. 8th grade boys think it's completely unjust that they're not at fault, that, that they should not have been moved, that the sixth grade girls are the ones that are responsible. So let's just say that I'm, I'm like the Apostle Paul and I'm writing a letter to my school about how to handle this. Okay. Now concerning the issue in the lunchroom, concerning the eighth grade boys and the sixth grade girls, it's been reported by the eighth grade boys that all of the issues have been started by the sixth grade girls. They are reporting that the sixth grade girls are bullying them by throwing food at them and picking on them. Handle it this way. Have the 8th grade boys share this information with their dads. Allow their dads to email me stating that the 6th grade girls are bullies and need to be dealt with. This is probably an issue in other middle schools where 6th grade girls target 8th grade boys. Let's handle this quickly. You read that. The expectation is certainly not that these boys go home and tell their dads to email me that, hey, the 6th grade girls won't leave me alone. This is how I handled it in person. I got the 8th grade boys together, and, and I said, okay, give me the, what's, what, what's the injustice here? Well, they're the ones that are doing it. They're being mean to us in the locker room. They're throwing food at us. And I said, well, here's I, I totally agree with you guys. I've heard of this. I've heard of 6th grade girls seeking out 8th grade boys and bullying them. I said, go home. Let's tell your dads. Email me, and I'll handle it. Let your dads know that there's some 6th grade girls picking on you. And they all were kind of like, yeah. And it just stopped because obviously these guys were not innocent in this situation. Obviously, we don't have sixth grade girls that are intentionally picking on eighth grade boys. Sixth grade girls are scared of eighth grade boys, right? Like that's why they're crying and that's why their parents are coming to me saying, deal with these eighth grade boys that are bullying my my daughter, okay? So I can write something like that and we could read that, you know, 2,000 years later and say, okay, like Adam was wanting emails to come in from dads about this. No, I wasn't. It was a teaching tool designed to show this is silly. This is not the way to handle this. This is silly. It's a teaching tool at times. Sarcasm can be used as a teaching tool. I think at times in this passage, Paul seeks to do that. Okay? So let's read through this chapter together, and then we're going to go through, and I'm going to make some comments on the verses that we're looking at. Pursue love. Now, that, that command comes out of 1 Corinthians 13, where we're told about how important love is and how it's the... The, the deciding factor about whether the gifts are being used properly. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. 
For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? If the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to an account by all. The secret of his hearts are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Yet all things be, let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged, and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones that is reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order. Now, we're not going to get into um, verse 29 through 40. We'll look at that briefly next week. We're going to focus mainly on the idea of the tongues in verses 1 through 28. So, some things that um, stand out to me, I'm going to give you, let me get some things from you real quick before I share with you mine. Big truths that come out of this chapter in your mind. 
Okay, tongues result in self-edification. Specifically, tongues without interpretation. What else? Okay, the, the tongues there were being used in an unintelligible language. Okay. What else? We'll see. We'll see. We're going to get into the signs for the believer unbeliever thing. Okay, tongues used for new revelation, new knowledge for believers. Anything else? Okay, presence of God being shown. Okay, things should be done orderly, properly, not willy-nilly. I actually saw willy-nilly in a commentary, though, so, um, yeah, some prophecy right there. Okay, gifts should be desired, all of them. Okay, gifts are meant to, to build up others. All right, this one is apparently not as obvious because I would disagree with some of the things that you guys say are the big truths coming out of this. Okay, so um, this one's the, the more confusing chapter. This is the difficult chapter. Um, so we're going to work through it uh, as much as we can, verse by verse. I'm going to give you the things that I really think are communicated in this chapter, and you can potentially disagree with some of these, but I'm hoping to show you why I think these are true as we work through it today. Um, speaking in a language people understand is better than not. Not speaking in a language that people are speaking in a language that people don't understand. So speaking in a language people understand is better than not speaking in a language that people understand. So he's saying if you speak in a language that people don't understand, that has no value in comparison to speaking in a language that people do understand. I mean, that, that seems to be running through this whole chapter, that there's superiority to speaking in a way that people understand. Okay? You could even potentially lump in the idea of speaking in a language that they didn't understand, but now with the interpretation they do. The important thing that he's communicating is that speaking in a way that people understand is far better than speaking in a way that people don't understand. Okay? Um, speaking in a language... No one understands helps no one. Now, what does he say? Who does he say it helps? It says it helps the, the, the self. It's for self-edification. I'm going to show you in a minute why I think he's being sarcastic there, that it's not okay to edify yourself. He's not suggesting, hey, if you're doing this, you're not helping others, but you are helping yourself, so there is some value there. I really think he's communicating you're edifying yourself, and you should not be doing that. We don't see any 
encouragement to use gifts anywhere else to edify ourselves. This would be the one exception. I'm going to show you in a minute why. See, we see the word edification. I mean, does that ever have a bad context? Like that, that seems like a very positive word, right? I'm going to show you an incident in 1 Corinthians where the exact same word is used and it's bad. And you should not edify in that way. So I'm suggesting that he is saying that, yes, to speak in a tongue that nobody understands, that's self-edification. And that's not a good thing. Okay? Um, I think... I'm going to show you unintelligible language is rejected as a Christian discipline. I think Paul is being pretty clear that there should not be private languages and private songs happening. I think Paul makes an argument that if I'm going to pray or I'm going to sing, I'm going to use my spirit and my mind to do it. I'm going to know what's going on. I don't think in any way he suggests the possibility that this should be happening in private outside the church. And I think we're going to see in a minute that because of the purpose, it would make absolute no sense to be doing it in that way. Because it wouldn't even be consistent with the purpose that he explains in 1 Corinthians 14. Um, Even when the gift is being used properly, it should not be overvalued. He still puts a premium on prophecy all through this. He says, it's, it's better. It's better. Now, he says, interpretation brings it up a notch. But he said, I'd still rather you all prophesy. I'd rather you all prophesy than all speak in tongues. It's better. So Kyle says, you know, it's, it's brought up to the same level with interpretation pretty close. I mean, that's, it's pretty close. It really, it's, it's, it's far more valuable with an interpretation. But I think he would still say, I'd rather you prophesy. I'd rather you proclaim God's word in a language that everybody understands, and we bypass the language that needs an interpretation. Overvalued. Tongues have a purpose. And tongues should be limited. Those are the big things that come out of this for me. By limited, I mean there are specific ways to do this. This is not an uncontrollable environment that Paul would allow for this to be taking place, which is what we typically hear and see for those that have visited these type of churches, that it's it's, it's completely unorganized it's not structured it's not ordered it's more of a free reign let the holy spirit come let the holy spirit act let the holy spirit work and everything else is just kind of thrown out the window paul gives some real specific instructions here he says when it's working out only two of you should be doing it maybe three but no more than three two 
maybe three. He also says there has to be an interpreter, which means he's saying if you look around and you want to speak in tongues, but there is no interpreter, don't. Can you imagine if we understand it in the way Holy Spirit has come upon me? I have a message for everybody, but I have to tell the Holy Spirit no because there's not an interpreter. See, it's, it's, you have a gift. You can speak in a language. But if there's not an interpreter, don't do it. Now, that would seem to be quenching the spirit, potentially, if we understand it the way that a lot of us have heard to understand tongues. But he's, I mean, he's, he's putting a clamp on it. He says, if three of you have already gone, you don't go. You don't get to talk. I don't think he's saying you have to tell the Holy Spirit, hey, shh. Like, we can't talk. Three, three guys already went. I think, I think we've misunderstood what's really happening when tongues were being used. I don't think the Holy Spirit was coming over them in some type of extraordinary, out-of-the-ordinary experience, and all of a sudden I can't control what I'm saying. Somebody interpret this. It seems to be very under control. Hey, keep in mind, two, three max, got to have an interpreter. Got to have an interpreter. Seems to be very more controlled than what seems to be happening in, in a lot of charismatic churches today. Um, okay. You may disagree with some of this stuff, and that's okay. I'm going to walk you through it and explain to you why I agree with it um, and why I think this is what Paul's trying to communicate. Let's start in verse 1. We'll start by looking at the position. Its position is secondary to prophecy. I think he communicates that through this chapter. It's position, tongue's position is secondary to prophecy. Number, verse 1, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mystery in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now, I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. What we have going on here in Corinth is that tongues were being used in a way that men could not understand. Okay? They, were, they were speaking in such a way that people were not understanding what was being said. There's some translation decisions that are made in this section that the argument could also go for it to be translated a little bit differently. In verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. Some background information on this, and I think this helps some. What was going on in the Corinthian pagan religion is that there was this type of ecstatic, unintelligible language that was being used in these false religions. It was an attempt to commune with their gods. And so they would try to put themselves in a type of frenzy that would lead to an out-of-body experience where they could speak the language of God and commune with him. We've talked about this. They had some weird things where they would, uh, they would go to these pagan temples and, and um, would be with, uh, be sexually with 
prostitutes there, and it was an attempt to act out activity for the gods in the heavens. So there was this desire to commune in a way that became very sensual, very out-of-body, very ecstatic, very otherworldly type. That's what they're saved out of. And they're bringing that type of activity into the church. Now, the translation here says, one who, who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. The original language could also say, but speaks to a God. Now, now you read that and you're like, oh, someone who speaks in a tongue, they're talking to God. We're not told anywhere in Scripture, in the clear passages. In fact, when the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray, he never once mentions Here's how you pray, but then here's how you really pray. Like you amp it up a level when you, lo- you use a different language. The clear passages in Scripture, Jesus says, don't use meaningless repetition, right? He says, pray clearly. Here's what you should pray for. I think Paul's suggesting when you're doing this, you're, you're reverting back to what you did in your pagan religion. You're just, you're just praying to a God. You're using unintelligible language that's characteristic of your previous religion. You're uttering mysteries in the spirit. Now, how many of you, your translation capitalizes spirit? Where you, you look at that and you say, oh, I'm uttering mysteries in the Holy Spirit. Does anybody have the S capitalized? That's a translation decision that's not there in the original text. That's something, and if you look at the ESV, now the ESV is, I value that translation, but there are some translation liberties that are taken as there are in any translation. If you read the ESV study Bible, though, the ESV study Bible is very open and cautious to this idea. So all the ESV study notes interpret this as, hey, we're we're speaking an unintelligible language. This should be happening in the church, that kind of thing. If you look, though, later on in this chapter, in verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, that's not capitalized. And it's the same word. So I'm going to suggest that really how we should understand verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to a God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in his spirit. Basically, you are uttering mysteries that are coming from inside of you. Things that nobody can understand because nobody understands what you're saying. They are mysteries that are just being uttered. And here's the key. They were staying mysterious. There was no interpretation happening. There was no translation happening. There were just these mysteries that were being uttered, and nobody knew what was being said. Nobody was, was, was being edified by it. Nobody was growing from it. He says, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. We see again Paul harping on the idea that spiritual gifts are meant to produce something spiritually worthwhile in someone else. But he does suggest here the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. So is he arguing that private prayer language is okay for you, but it's not the best thing because it doesn't edify everybody. But it's still got value because it edifies you. I don't think he's suggesting that that should be an activity by Christians. Again, that word build up. If you want to go back to 1 Corinthians 8, the same word is used. Same idea of building up, but it's used in a negative context. 
First Corinthians 8, he's talking about food being offered to idols. Should we eat it? Should we not eat it? The matter of the conscience, you don't want to violate your conscience. This gets into Christian freedom. Should we drink alcohol? Should we not drink alcohol? Should we smoke tobacco? Should we not smoke tobacco? There are issues in Scripture that there are Christian liberty, Christian freedom to engage in for some people. But then for others, it's not okay. It's a violation of the conscience, and it becomes sin because we're ignoring promptings going on inside of us. So he's addressing this food offered to idols, and look what he says. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former associating with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not condemn us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols, and so by your knowledge this person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. That word encouraged. Will he not be encouraged? It's the same word for building up here in 1 Corinthians 14. Now, I mean, how often can the word encouraged be used in a negative context? Probably not often. But Paul says, you are encouraging this man, you are building this man up, you are edifying this man to do something that violates his conscience. It's used in a negative context here. 1 Corinthians 14, I think he's using it in a negative context too. And I'm basing that on what we see in all the other clear passages of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.11 Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We have responsibility to build others up. Romans 15, 2 and 3. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. All through the New Testament, we see a mindset that we're supposed to put others above ourselves, that we're to serve others, we're to edify others. This would be the only case that I'm aware of where self-edification was okay. I think he's using it in a negative context. I think he's saying what you were doing is characteristic of what you used to do. When you tried to communicate with a God and you felt like the only way that you really could was in a language that you didn't understand. He's saying that has no let – me, let me argue to you from the basis of what spiritual gifts are. You're edifying yourself if you do that if nobody else knows what you're saying. Like I think he's condemning this type of practice. You're not edifying anybody but yourself, and when is that really ever okay to say that, hey, here's a reason I do this. It edifies me. It builds me up. He uses this word in a negative context other in, in, in 1 Corinthians 8. Um, so it's, it's um, at least viable that he, he uses this type of word both positively and negatively. Um, all right, so going back to 1 Corinthians 14. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Again, he is, he is emphasizing the church and the building of the church is what we've got to be about, not building up of ourselves. 
I think he kind of throws out a hypothetical situation because neither one of these is possible. It's not that the Holy Spirit is going to give everybody the gift of tongues, nor is he going to give everybody the gift of prophecy. It's not a possible situation. He's showing he doesn't despise this gift, though. It's not that he's just anti-tongues. He's saying, and I wish all of you spoke in tongues. Like, like I'm okay, I'm, I would be okay with that scenario. Even though that's not possible, the Holy Spirit gives gifts to who he wants to give. But I'm not condemning tongues, is what Paul's saying. I wish you all spoke in tongues. But I wish you all prophesied too, because that's better. It's better. You're speaking a language that people understand, and the church is being built up for it. He goes on to build this argument, verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? He says, if I show up and just start speaking what we understand today as a heavenly language, he says, what good is that to you? What good is it to you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? He says, it would be no good if me, the Apostle Paul, showed up in all of my authority and spoke to you in a way that you didn't understand. It would have no value. If I don't bring to you some type of revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching, you're not going to be built up. Then he argues from the musical realm. If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourself, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. He says, just like an instrument, if the music is not understandable, it's noisy, annoying, and of no profit. Unless the message is understood, it's useless. He says, you could just start playing notes on an instrument, but it's not going to generate a result. You have to give distinct tones on the bugle to get an army to march. It has to be intelligible. It has to be understandable. You have to comprehend it. Otherwise, it's just noise, and it doesn't really help anybody. John MacArthur said, it, you know, it'd be like, kind of using it from my personal illustration, it'd be like when AJ gets his xylophone out like he had last night and is just banging away on it. It's not pretty, Right. Like, it's unintelligible. We've got a little card that came with that xylophone, and if you hit the certain colors in the right order, it produces uh, intelligible music. AJ doesn't know how to do it. He just wails on it. And eventually you're like, get that away from him. Like, I can't, it, it hurts. Like, it's hurting. Like, get that noise out of here. That's what he's illustrating what they were doing. Now, again, some people would want to suggest that what they were doing was okay, but they needed to improve upon it. It's okay to be doing it in this heavenly language on your own, but let's move towards a more profitable situation. We're talking about people, if you read through 1 Corinthians 1 through 13, I mean, this is a messed up bad church, right? Like they are tolerating some of the grossest sins. This is not the type of setting that you would say, but boy, that Holy Spirit, he's getting in there and giving them some special revelation, some special knowledge, and they're speaking to God and communing in a heavenly language. 
This is not the ideal setting for the Holy Spirit to be moving in that way. It doesn't give a lot of credibility that these people were doing really anything right in this gift. They're so messed up in so many other areas. They are not walking in the spirit. They are walking in the flesh. And Paul's having to like redirect all aspects of this church, including this area of tongues. So I think it's a stretch to say, hey, they were doing it in a way that's okay. They just needed to do it better. It seems like they were doing it wrong, and here's the only way you can really do it. It's got to be intelligible. It's got to be in a way that people can understand. A language without meaning is pointless. Meaning makes it a language. The purpose of language is to communicate. A speaker and a hearer must understand the message according to Paul. Now, he doesn't address this, but I have to wonder, and and I'm still working through the gift of interpretation and that type of thing. I have to wonder if part of the reason there, there seems to be little to no interpretation happening in this context. And I have to wonder if what he's suggesting is the reason you guys aren't interpreting it is because you don't even know it because it's not a language. For it to be interpreted, it has to be a language. It has to have meaning. He says there's all kinds of languages, right? Verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. So if you come in here speaking a language that exists, we could get to the meaning of it. All language has meaning. That's the definition of language. It's the ability to communicate. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. I'm not sure that you could even argue that interpretations were being attempted. This stuff was being done like the pagan religions. I'm speaking gibberish. I'm speaking a non-real language. I'm trying to speak to God like I used to in my pagan religion. And Paul says, that's not what the gift's for. The gift's to edify the church. You should be speaking intelligibly. Even to the point if you're using a language, it's still intelligible to somebody. Somebody speaks this language. Somebody can tell us what it means. But you're attempting to speak in a way that nobody speaks that way. You're using a language that nobody's familiar with. I think it's interesting that no other, there's no mention in scripture of a single word spoken in tongues. Like we don't have tongue language in scripture for us. We also don't have a direct interpretation of tongue language anywhere in scripture. That would be very helpful, especially in the sense of a heavenly language for there to be some type of an example right because we can't all like i wouldn't think that there would be multiple heavenly languages probably like if the angels speak a language they probably speak a language i don't know that you could walk into you know a first assembly of god church and hear somebody speaking in heavenly language and it be the same language that you hear at another church that's charismatic I think people are just speaking. They're speaking in gibberish that's not a real language. And Paul seems to be arguing intelligible language, people. It's got to be something that's real, that that has the purpose of communication, if anybody's going to understand it. He goes on. 
Verse 13. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. Now, that doesn't jump out as sarcastic. But there's the possibility that what he's saying is, in all of your time that you spend in this private prayer language, perhaps you could spend some time asking for God to give you an understanding of what this even means. He's saying, okay, I realize what you guys are doing. You're praying a lot in a language. Maybe spend some time praying that God would give you the interpretation for it because it doesn't seem like any interpretation is coming out here. Because Paul continues to say, nobody understands. Nobody understands. You're doing this and nobody understands. If it was just a lack of interpreter, this chapter could have been a lot shorter, right? Like, hey, Paul says, you're using it right. Just get an interpreter in there and that'll help. He spends a lot more time talking about this than if it was just an issue of an interpreter. But he goes on to say, verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. If I'm just praying in a tongue, if I'm, if I'm trying to do what you guys are doing, Paul says, if I'm trying to pray in a language that I don't understand, my spirit's praying, I, I, like I'm, I'm doing this, but honestly, I don't even understand what I'm saying. And I've talked to people who do this, and they don't know what they're saying. They're using unintelligible sounds and noises, and they don't know what they're saying. The guy that I most recently talked to said, I'm trying to act out Romans 8, where when I don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit prays for me. I just provide the, the sound for it. Paul says, if I pray this way, though, my spirit's praying, but my mind's really not involved in it. Verse 15, what does Paul say? What am I to do? This, Paul said, this is how I handle it. When I pray, I pray with my spirit, but I pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Verse 16, otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. I don't see how you can read that passage and say, yep, I think we should pray in a different language and we should sing in a different language. I don't see him leaving any wiggle room there. He says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to sing with my soul. I'm going to sing with my spirit and my mind. And I'm going to pray with my spirit and my mind. I really think he's saying tongues never functions in the form of singing and praying. He doesn't say, hey, just get an interpreter in there. He says the guy doesn't know when to say amen. The implication is stop praying in this language. It's not pray in this language, get an interpreter, and then your buddy knows when to say amen. He doesn't suggest that. He, since he seems to be saying, don't pray and don't sing in a language you don't understand and nobody understands. Now, again, he's, gonna, he's saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not anti-tongue. He says, I wish you all spoke in tongues, and I'm going to tell you how I wish you all spoke in tongues. He seems to be saying, it ain't this way. We got we to eliminate this, this, this secret prayer stuff that you're doing and this secret singing stuff. And this is what you see in charismatic churches. You walk into church, and I, and I, and I asked again, how does this happen at the school? People start singing, and people, you look around, and people are just saying stuff, and nobody understands it. 
We have big corporate prayer times, and people start praying, and nobody understands it. I don't see how you can do that and look at this and say, man, we're doing what we should be doing. Paul says, stop doing that. Like, like stop praying in a way that nobody understands. Stop singing in a way that nobody understands. You're just making noise. You're like an instrument. You're not giving clear direction. If you're going to speak or sing, use your mind as well. Know what's going on. Others need to know what's going on. Now we get into the purpose of it. So he, he, he he's elevating intelligible language over unintelligible. Now he starts to talk to us about the purpose. And this it's it's a little confusing, but I think when we look in the context of some clear passages that this really may give us our clear direction about tongues moving forward. Verse 20, brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it's written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. As specific as you can be, who are tongues for in that passage? Unbelievers, but I think you can go a step further. No, opposite. Whoever this people is from the prophecy. God says, I will do this for this people. Who are this people? Who's the people group? Israel. I think Paul's saying this is a sign for unbelievers, specifically unbelieving Israel. Why? That is opinion? No, he's basing it off a prophecy, a prophecy from Isaiah. If any, uh, or, um, sorry, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. When I see a prophecy, I'm going to jump back and hear that in context. So if you go back to Isaiah 28, where this comes from. Isaiah 28, verse 11 and 12 is where this prophecy comes from. Now, if you go back and read this whole chapter, we see why God says this. God is trying to warn his people about coming judgment. And he's using the prophet to do that. Now, at this point, the kingdom is split in two. He's already warned one half, and they fell into judgment. He's warning the other half now, and they are ignoring the warnings. Look what it says in verse 9. To whom will he teach knowledge, and to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk, those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. What does that mean? The people that Isaiah was trying to warn were saying, get your elementary stuff out of here. That message is so basic. Like, it's for babies. It's for people that have just come off the milk. Like, we're way more intellectual. We are way more higher than you. Give us something that's meaty. 
I mean, he was giving them basic instruction about repentance, and they're saying, give us something more mysterious from God than this. This is basic stuff, and you say it all the time. Precept upon precept, line upon line, give us something that's good. So God responds and says, for a people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. God says, I'll give you exactly what you want. I'll give you stuff that you can't really even understand. It's so high for you. Now, he warns them in other places about this. If you go to Deuteronomy twenty-eight forty-nine. Deuteronomy 28, 49. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle, a nation whose language you do not understand. Jeremiah 5, 15. Behold, I'm bringing against you a nation from afar, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation, a nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. The idea of language and not understanding it is always used for God's people as a sign of coming judgment. A sign of coming judgment. So let's go back to where this all begins in Acts chapter 2. This is, when, this is when the phenomenon of tongues starts, right? Acts chapter 2, verse 5, or we'll uh, start more one. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. It filled the entire house they were, where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. They were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Is there coming judgment that they needed to be warned about? Yeah, Jesus talks about it before he leaves, right? Jesus says Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. The destruction of Jerusalem is coming in Luke 19.44. God's been warning them about this, and now they've rejected the only Savior, the Messiah. Luke 19.41, when he drew near and saw the city, talking about Jesus, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. That same idea of peace that Isaiah promised, right, that they rejected. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. In Luke 21 Verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are inside the city depart, and let those let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people 
They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles till the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. I believe Paul is communicating this is a sign specifically for Israel. It's a sign of destruction and judgment coming. I think it's unnecessary today because we don't have any unbelieving Jews that are coming to our services. And the warning judgment that was supposed to be warning them about has already come. He says this is for this is for a people. And they were warned about in Isaiah 28 that one day God would speak to them in languages. They weren't content with the basic message, so languages would be a form that God would use, and they still wouldn't understand. Paul says, Thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If, therefore, the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? He's saying if an unbelieving Gentile walks in, he has no idea what's going on and he doesn't recognize that this is a sign. He says, based on how you're handling, you guys are trying to commune with God. You're not using this gift properly. An unbelieving Gentile walks in and says, uh, what's going on? Like, this is kind of like the pagan temple. Like, this doesn't make any sense. Are you guys crazy? If an unbelieving Jew walks in, they don't get the sign because of how it's being handled in this mass confusion. I don't think, though, that he's suggesting that it's bad for them to come in and think that you're out of your mind. Because I think even with interpretation, they're going to think they're crazy. Why? I see that from Acts 2. Let's go back to Acts 2. I think this gives us some clarity about how this is supposed to look. In Acts 2, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together. And they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. These people understand the tongues, and they still think these people are crazy. They understand what the message is. They think it's crazy, though, that they're hearing it in languages that are not Hebrew. That aren't like their, 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 their Jewish language. Even, it's not even in their Greek language. It's in like these foreign languages. Remember, they come from a dispersion. They were, they were captive. And they never came back home. So they grew up in countries that spoke other languages. Now for the longest time, I thought they came to Jerusalem and needed this because they didn't understand the language that the disciples spoke. I don't think I think that anymore. I think these guys were amazed that the disciples weren't talking to them in the basic language that everybody spoke. They were speaking to them in the other language that they knew. 
Because Peter goes on to preach a sermon that everybody understands. It seems like he uses the common language. So I don't even think this was for evangelistic purposes, meaning we've got people here that don't understand the gospel, and I don't speak their language, so I need a gift to communicate it to them. We're told what they tell them, right? It's not the gospel. What do they tell them? What is the message that comes out of this tongue speaking? We hear them in our own language. They are telling us what? Look at it. Read it. The mighty works of God. You know where you see that phrase over and over and over again? It's Old Testament, right? we got a Jewish audience. I'm speaking in tongues, and I'm telling you about the mighty works of God. Now, if it just stops there, we walk away. That was cool. Are 3,000 people added to the church that day? No. No. Because the people are hearing it, but they're saying, you guys are crazy. Like, you're drunk. Like, how is this even happening? They were telling them things they already knew. The mighty works of God. Now, here's, here's where it really, this is, this is, you got to get this. And I think this, that this, when I realized this this week, this, this makes, the whole tongue thing makes so much more sense to me now. I think God uses the tongues and the mighty works of God to generate an audience of unbelieving Jews. And he connects Old Covenant with New Covenant based on this prophecy. You are hearing the mighty works of God in foreign languages. And you understand the language, but you still don't understand the message. And then what does Peter say? He gets up and says, let me explain to you what's happening. You killed the Messiah. I think if he just shows up with these unbelieving Jews and says, here's the new covenant, Jesus is the Messiah, and you killed him, they walk away from it. But they get the connection between old covenant and new covenant because they hear the mighty works of God coming from these people from foreign languages that was prophesied about. Then the gospel is communicated. Then they get saved. Remember, trans, transition from Old Covenant to New Covenant. We said some crazy stuff's happening because we are conditioned to think Old Covenant and we got to change everybody's thinking to New Covenant. So I think if you go back to 1 Corinthians 14, remember, they're elevating tongues like tongues. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Paul says if you just go with tongues, people walk in and think you're crazy. You gotta have the prophecy. You gotta have the proclamation of God's word. You gotta have the proclamation of the new covenant of Jesus so that these people fall on their face and worship God and say, God is here with you. Because I think even if you left it as the interpretation of tongues, here's the mighty works of God, you still have people saying, you guys are out of your mind. Just like you have here. It wasn't that they didn't understand, they understood what they were saying, but they didn't understand what, what it meant. Peter expounds on it and says, here's the gospel. You killed Jesus and you need Jesus. And he gets saved. I think Paul's reverting back to, hey, tongues, it's got its place. It generates the audience of unbelieving Jews that need to hear this. But you can't elevate it and not have the prophecy because the prophecy is what changes the lives of these people. Right? It says that that's what gets them. It's the sign that's given to believers so they can become believers. So they can turn to the gospel. I don't think tongues is ever used to give new mysteries of revelation from God. They're talking about the mighty works of the Old Testament when tongues is first introduced. 
and we don't see really any indication beyond a bunch of people that are doing it wrong that the purpose ever changed. Mighty works of God, unbelieving Israel, hear it, connect it, Jesus, here's the gospel. If that's the case, how does it work for today? What's the procedure? If the purpose is a sign for unbelievers, specifically unbelieving Jews, Paul's saying it has its purpose, it has its place. Don't go off and do this privately. It has no value. You're trying to build up yourself like you did in your old religions where you try to talk to God. You don't have to talk to God that way. You can pray with your mind and your spirit. You don't have to create some ecstatic experience to talk to God. The veil's been torn down. You've got full access to the throne. Just talk to him. Just talk to him. Now, the sign of, of tongues, it has a purpose. It has a purpose. It connects the old to the new. Use it for that purpose. And then he gives instructions about using it. Back in 1 Corinthians 14. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let others weigh what is said. He gives some clear purposes for the procedure. He reminds us the purposes for the edification of others. He says two or three at the most and take turns. So you don't get to speak when somebody else is speaking. Take turns. Let one interpret. And the emphatic position is used there in the Greek, which implies like we only need one interpreter for today. This guy's going to interpret these two to three people. And we've said before it implies that you knew who could interpret. You were supposed to look around. So it wasn't this ecstatic, oh, like I'm, I'm starting to feel it. I'm getting the Holy Spirit upon me. It was, hey, I think I've got a message. Is there an interpreter here? Great. There is. Have, nope. I'd be the second one today. Here, I've got something. And the reason I've got something is there are unbelieving Jews are in our presence today. And this is a sign for them. I think that's what Paul's trying to communicate here. And this phase, this battery runs out. Because in AD 70, the destruction comes, right? Like Jerusalem was obliterated. Old covenant passes away in the sense that you can't go to the temple and offer sacrifices anymore. So what would this look like moving forward at Sovereign Hope? Again, I think this is done with. Because I think the purpose is no longer valid. Now, for the longest time, I've thought, man, I'm really open to God allowing somebody to speak in a foreign language to communicate the gospel. That may happen, but I don't know that that would be consistent with what we call tongues here in the New Testament. Again, they were not communicating the gospel in these foreign languages. They were communicating the mighty works of God from the Old Testament. Then Peter stands up and speaks in a way that everybody can understand and says, here's the gospel. Now, that doesn't mean that, well, God would never give that to somebody. But you know what? I don't know that we have an example in Scripture where he does. And I got a lot of examples where he doesn't. 
Like Don Richardson, who went to uh, the headhunters in uh, New Guinea, he spent eight to ten hours a day learning that language to communicate the gospel. People died every day. He did not know that language. It may happen. I don't know that that's consistent with the purpose of tongues in the New Testament, but I'm very open to miracles happening. I'm open to God healing people. I'm open to God giving special, unique situations when necessary. I mean, he transports Philip to go talk to the Ethiopian. I think God brings people to people that need the gospel, and he may at times give them a language to where he, they can speak in that person's language. I don't know if we can back it up from Scripture, though, because I don't know if we have an example in Scripture of that happening. I think even in the, in the other incidents in Acts, these people were speaking in tongues, not giving new mysteries and revelations from God. I think they were proclaiming the mighty works of God to the Jewish people in those areas, potentially. So how would this look moving forward at Sovereign Hope? Because I'm saying, I'm saying, you know, I recognize in verse 39, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Now, I think they've ceased. I think 1 Corinthians 13 says they would cease. I think the battery ran out. But just on the possibility that that battery is still kicking a little bit longer, what would that look like at Sovereign Hope? A couple of things you can jot these down in case you're sitting there thinking, I might have this gift. Here's how it would look. I don't think it's done in private, and I think it's done to edify the church. I think we have to start there. Now, there may be people in our church that, that pray in a, in a heavenly language. If you come talk to me about it, I'm going to tell you I don't think that's what we're supposed to do. But, Adam, you don't understand. Like, my relative does it. I know they do this. I've heard them do it. Yeah, I've heard people speak in this type of stuff before. And I've also talked to leadership in churches that say, I do this. I control this. I make myself speak this way. So I could stop everything right now and start speaking in a way that none of you understood. I can generate that experience for you. Is that Holy Spirit led with a, with a message from God? I could tell you that it was. And you could walk away saying, tongues have to continue because Adam did it this morning. I could sit up here and think, I mean, I made that up and I made up the interpretation. And these people think it really happened. So I'm not doubting that you know people who say they've experienced this. What I'm doubting is, has that really come from the Holy Spirit? Because is that really consistent with the purpose that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians 14? So if it were continued at Sovereign Hope, it can't be in private. It has to be done to edify the church. Secondly, I think unbelievers have to be present. And let's be honest, we're not the best at bringing unbelievers on a Sunday morning to Sovereign Hope, right? Like that's probably an area of evangelism where we still lack so until our church building starts being full of unbelievers, we don't really even have to worry about this, I don't think. Because this is for unbelievers, and we don't have any, right? So this is a mute point to me right now at Sovereign Hope. Because this is something for unbelievers. This is a sign, Paul says. So it can't be done in private. Unbelievers have to be present. And we might could even go a step further and say they got to be Jewish. So if an unbelieving Jewish individual were to walk in here on a Sunday morning, now my closed perspective, like the door's a little bit open now, potentially. We've got an unbelieving Jew in our presence. 
two or three, or an interpreter has to be present. This is a prerequisite. An interpreter has to be present before anybody's allowed to speak in another language. That's a prerequisite to this happening. And then only two or three can do it. And then I would argue, based on the only revelation that we have about what comes out of this is from Acts 2, that the message that's being spoken in this foreign language would have to be tied to the mighty works of God from the Old Testament. Not something in the future. Not some type of new revelation for our church today. Not something that our church should start doing. Again, if we're going to be faithful to what this was, what was happening in the New Testament, I think that's the procedure we'd have to follow. We're doing it publicly so the church can be edified. Unbelievers have to be present, maybe unbelieving Jews. Interpreter has to be present. Only two or three people, one at a time, in order. And you've got to be talking about the mighty works of God. Now, obviously, we don't know who interpreters are, so we can't do this as it stands right now. Potentially, or at least somebody would have to be able to interpret. And there's the gift of interpretation that uh, potentially is being given to somebody who doesn't speak the language that interprets it, maybe even for the unbelieving Jew. So I don't know that it necessitates the Jew has to, because we're told that the Jews won't understand it. Is it they won't understand the language or the meaning behind it? Maybe both, maybe one, maybe the other. Um, so you've got, I think you've got to have unbelievers present. You've got to have an interpreter so that everybody can understand what's being said. We don't know who would be an interpreter in our church right now. Or somebody with the gift of interpretation. And again, I think, I think what would be... what what. What would be advocated is somebody stands up, Jesse stands up, there's unbelievers present, and he communicates something in Romanian. Maybe there's a Romanian-speaking Jew here, maybe not. But there has to be somebody here who can understand Romanian to interpret it for everybody. And God potentially uses that prophecy to warn that unbeliever about the fact that they need to respond to the gospel because of coming judgment. Now, because we don't know who interpreters are, we would have to rely on you coming to us and saying, I think I have the gift of tongues. Well, Adam, what if, what if the Holy Spirit comes upon me in the, in the middle of a service or in the middle of a worship session? I mean, Tyson's just doing a great job and, and, and the music's going good and I want to speak out. And t- you can't. You can't. And it's not something that you're so out of control of that you, you have to. Because Paul says if there's not an interpreter... You can't do it. So he's implying there's some control over this gift. So I would say you would have to individually come to us and say, hey, I think I might have this gift. And then we would sit down and talk about it. What what makes you think you have this gift? What purpose, what edification do you see happening from our church? Because potentially you don't know the message of it. So there would have to be dialogue and discussion there.
I've still got a lot of questions about this area, but one reason I'm not worried about this, like I'm, I'm willing to, after next week, we're going to have a C group day next week, so we're going to meet here, talk a little bit more, maybe do some Q&A, and then we're going to go eat lunch together, and we're going to talk about spiritual gifts moving forward in the sense of here's some things we need you guys to do in our church. Who wants to do them? So we're moving away from this confusing stuff, and I'm okay with setting this aside now and kind of being done with it for the time because this is to some degree unclear stuff, and as a church, I don't think we're being faithful with the clear stuff right now, right? Like we're not being bold evangelistic witnesses like New Covenant believers are supposed to be, and until we're faithfully doing the revealed stuff, I'm not worried about the fact that maybe we should be speaking in tongues, but we're not. Because what I do know is that we're not being faithful to do the clear stuff right now. And I don't think we can really try to incorporate some of this unclear stuff, if we're supposed to. I don't think we are, until we're definitely doing the clear stuff. Until we're doing the clear stuff, I don't think we have anything to be worried about. Oh, should we be speaking in tongues? Like, are we missing out? No, because we're not doing the things that we should be doing. And until we're doing that, I don't think we really have to entertain this idea anymore. Here's what I think our goal has to be at Sovereign Hope, Acts 9.31. You know, I think the other thing that comes out of 1 Corinthians 14 is that um, when a church is known for their tongue speaking, it's probably bad. Right? Like, tongues don't ever come up in any of the other letters written to churches. Was it happening? Potentially. Paul says, I speak in tongues more than anybody. I think Paul was going from, from location to location and potentially speaking in tongues regularly for the Jewish audience that he was coming in contact with. But it's never discussed as a defining characteristic in any of the other churches. So when it is a defining characteristic, we can assume it must be bad because it was bad for the Corinthians. In addition, Acts 2.37, after the greatest spectacle of tongues ever that we have recorded that was legit, that we can guarantee was legit, Peter preaches this sermon, and how many people spoke in tongues out of those 3,000? We're not told that any of them did, right? In fact, we're told right after that they devoted themselves to what? Tongue speaking? No. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to praying together. Tongue speaking wasn't even one of their defining characteristics at the beginning. It was a sign for unbelievers. It was a sign for the Jewish people, I believe. And it phased itself out once that purpose was no longer there. Acts 9.31. Let me read Acts 4.31. You stay in Acts 9.31. Acts 4.31. This is what I would really love to happen in our church. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak, not in tongues, they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That was what was normal for the local churches in that time. They were speaking the word of God with boldness. And when they were faithful to edify by using their gifts, so the church, 931, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. When they were faithful to build each other up and not try to self-edify themselves, the church multiplied. 
my hope moving forward is that we can use the individualistic abilities that you guys have to build each other up in this church so that overall our church is being edified. And when that's happening on the level that it's supposed to happen, I believe our church multiplies. It multiplies because we're proclaiming the gospel boldly. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.